captain must feel when he finally has either to abandon his beloved ship or go down with it. I did not want to go from the capital. But in fact, in the months and years following the collapse of those twin towers, another sort of abandonment has commenced. In our horror and shock over the bizarre and unexpected attacks in New York and Washington, and the thwarted attempt in Pennsylvania on September 11th, a slow unraveling of the people's liberties has begun. From the ambivalence of the Congress, to the pandering nature of media coverage, to the passive attitude of too many of our citizens, we are, all of us, guilty of aiding and abetting a heinous process. Today, I am angry, having bent my back and my brain in service to my country for over fifty years. I have tried to imbue all that I strive for in life with my utmost efforts, especially my forty-five years in the United States Senate. Long in awe of the institution I serve, I studied its roots in ancient Rome and read dozens of archaic tomes on Roman history. Along the way I wrote a book about the Roman Senate. I have studied both the British roots of our system and the Federalist Papers, pondering the lives of the framers and founders, and set down a four-volume history of the United States Senate. I have read the journals and the writings of early senators. I carry a copy of the Constitution in my shirt pocket nearly all the time. Through this careful study, I hold a deep personal appreciation for the bedrock importance of our Constitution and the wisdom of its framers. Only the Constitution's genius, I believe, affords our people the powers and prerogatives that truly keep us a free nation, most centrally through maintenance of the checks and balances and separation of powers. Such long study has made me painfully aware of why lives have been lost throughout history to protect these essential principles. For a long while I have viewed with dismay each and every assault on the separation of powers, and the continual grasping and groping for more and more power by presidents of both political parties, but never with such alarm as now. How can we be so comatose as a nation when so many damaging and radical changes are at once thrust upon us? In trying to describe our situation and our apathy, I often turn to a book title of some years ago. Sleepwalking Through History by Haynes Johnson. What follows is my attempt to awaken us all before it is too late. Chapter 1 Changing the Tone George W. Bush is the eleventh president with whom I have served. The ten prior occupants of the White House hailed from all points of the compass, with personal histories, habits, and economic circumstances as diverse as their origins. Some were young and some not so young. Five were Democrats and five Republicans. Half had been vice president, six had served in Congress. Many had seen combat and knew firsthand the horrors of war. All had traveled widely. Most had exhibited strong intellectual talents, either during their school years or later in their chosen professions. During wartime and peacetime I have watched and worked with these men as they grappled with foreign and domestic crises, and some with personal and political scandals. The bully pulpit of the modern presidency is a formidable tool, but presidential leadership requires much, much more than an expensive pollster and God-given charisma. Skillfully guiding a great nation through good times and bad requires a vision of where to take the country a plan as to how best to get there, and mature, solid judgment tempered by wisdom and restraint. 
experience with turning the wheels of government, a good working knowledge of history, a thorough understanding and appreciation of the nuances of our constitutional system, and an intuitive grasp of the idiosyncrasies of human nature. All are vital for one who would dare to assume such an awesome burden. While also essential, a talented staff, gifted speechwriters, and loyal and experienced cabinet officers are not enough. The pace of daily events which surrounds the office of president is frenetic, and after all of the loyal advisers, political soothsayers, and sycophants have gone home, a president is alone with only the crushing responsibility of his oath of office for company. Truman had it right. The buck stops here. Such a burden cannot be borne with distinction and grace, minus that peculiar amalgam of intellect, values, morals, and ethics we call character. The challenges facing our great country, from within and from without, demand that we the people scrutinize with utmost care anyone who would be so bold as to ask to shoulder the colossal task of leading the United States of America. As an up-close observer of the stewardship of eleven presidents, I believe that the intellect, the judgment, and the character of one man, the American president, often alters history for ill or for good. My eleventh president, George W. Bush, entered the White House with fewer tools than most. He had virtually no experience in foreign policy, and little more in domestic policy. In contrast to his father, George H. W. Bush, whose resume in government service was often joked about as being the longest in Washington, George W., the son, had quite skimpy hands-on public service credentials. George W. Bush served one four-year term and only half of a second term as a governor of Texas before moving into the White House. Prior to that, he could claim as his own only a mediocre academic record, a raucous youth, a failed run for the U.S. House of Representatives, less than stellar stints in the oil business, and part ownership of a Texas baseball team. In short, George W. Bush, a child of wealth and privilege and heir to an American political dynasty, did not pay his dues. He did not have to. His name was Bush, and he ran for president because he could and because he was tapped by Republican Party poobahs. Governor Bush's acquired skills were mostly political, gleaned from doing campaign duty for his father. His presidential campaign, really the soul of simple-mindedness, showcased only one major idea. Massive tax cuts that the country clearly could not afford. That one flawed idea, combined with a mushy all-purpose and never-defined concept labeled compassionate conservatism, provided Bush with just enough rhetoric to keep him under the radar and get him through the politics of the 2000 presidential campaign. He was, and is, carefully handled by political operatives who work hard to shield him from complicated or probing questions and to keep him to bullet points of repetition. His major talent seems always to have been in raising money, and the money poured in from the corporate interests, who knew they would have a reliable friend in the White House if Bush won. Before the 2000 election, Bush raised an eye-popping $101 million dollars, which allowed him to forego federal matching funds during primary season and spend unlimited sums. By contrast, Al Gore raised $46 million and did accept matching funds, a decision which limited his expenditures. Bush outraised Gore among all ten business sectors in the U.S. economy. Both candidates accepted federal matching funds in the general election and therefore stopped raising money directly at that time. 
but in all, Bush raised more than $191 million, including federal funds, in the 2000 presidential election cycle. Al Gore raised just over $133 million. Thus, George W. Bush, a man of formidable political skills but with little grounding in substance or experience, became our 43rd president. He offered no vision, and in the campaign skillfully avoided all of the tough problems which have festered for years on the home front. After a promising inaugural address, he proceeded to run over the Congress by ramming through a budget plan which sacrificed too many of our future domestic priorities and called for a tax cut which went too far. A bankrupt fiscal and economic policy was emerging, one that put the lie to most rhetorical claims of the Bush campaign, all issues the country was beginning to notice. But 9-11, that terrible day, provided a way to salvage what was fast becoming a themeless, floundering presidency. Here was an event that blurred the spectacle of a rising deficit and a flagging economy, and substituted a powerful theme and focus for Bush's presidency. The horrendous loss of life, the shock, trauma, and fear among the American people, the surge of patriotism, and the sense of common danger, all of these quickly catapulted this rather inarticulate, directionless man, who had come to his august position after a national election that was a virtual tie, and a strange decision by the U.S. Supreme Court regarding how votes were counted in a state governed by the candidate's brother, to a level of power granted to few men in all of history. The nation suddenly looked to Bush for protection. All dissenting voices were stilled. Vast foreign policy pronouncements went unquestioned. Anything the White House wanted was quickly provided by the Congress. The now controversial Patriot Act passed in the Senate 96 to 1 in mid-October of 2001, a scant four weeks after 9-11. Incredible far-reaching power swung...